Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. Father, you've created every human being on this planet as an image bearer and given purpose to every human being on this planet. Sin and Satan have both deceived us and darkened and clouded our understanding of human existence. In our rebellion against you, gracious God, we have deformed and we even now willingly destroy human life. We deny the imago Dei, the image of God in every being living. We divide from one another. We deny the very existence of your glory in each of us and our world is broken because of it. And many are broken in heart and mind and soul because of sin. All are broken. This morning, Father, as we have time to honor the sanctity of life, that is the gift the separateness, the holiness of life, the value of life, the worth of life. May we give thanks that we are breathing air today, the fact that our brain is functioning, that our words are being spoken and we can be heard and our hearts are beating is such a gift to us of grace. And Father, as we deal with this difficult topic of abortion in our culture, May we deal with it head on and humbly with heartfelt compassion, not only for the babies, Father, but for the families, for the confused, for the hurting this morning. May the tone of this Sunday gathering be so gentle. There are bruises in this room that are deep and so painful, but there are bruises on our Savior by which we are healed. Heal us, gracious Father. Save us from ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. So January 22nd, 1973, uh, the Supreme Court in a 7-2 decision legalized abortion for all women, and they really did this under the 14th Amendment. If you haven't studied the history of the legalization of abortion, it's 
quite fascinating and quite troubling. The 14th Amendment was actually originally added to the Constitution as a means of protecting freed slaves and their rights to life and their rights to liberty and their rights to the pursuit of happiness. Now, this landmark case comprised Jane Rowe, who was coming up against the Dallas County District Attorney, Henry Wade. And at that time, he was enforcing a Texas law that prohibited abortion except in the case of saving a mother's life. Now, so many years ago, 1973, three years before I was actually born, now to today, I did a bunch of different research and found a bunch of different studies. But as of today, and Corey, if you could bring up those slides for us. I can't find them on my iPad this morning. As of today, January 16th, or January 1st, 2016, from the decision of Roe v. Wade, I'm going to try to talk normal today. This is overwhelming. There have been 58,586,256 babies aborted. Just to put that into perspective, I did a little quick math. If you took all of the population from North Olympia, the Puget Sound basically, all the way to North Seattle, Linwood, Everett. And then you swept around in a big circle out east of Bellevue, out towards North Bend. If you took all of those people, the Puget Sound population, and you timesed that by 12, that's how many people have been killed since 1973. Globally, there are 40 to 50 million abortions per year. That equates to about 125,000 people a day. The city of Kent every day is destroyed in the womb of their mothers. 11 years on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, President Ronald Reagan, who was adamantly pro-life, issued a presidential proclamation on January 13th designating January 22nd, 1984 as the National Sanctity of Human Life Day. In a New York Times article that I found two years later in 1986, while Reagan was still adamantly opposed to the abortion that was going on post Roe v. Wade, I found these quotes from him and I thought they were so impactful. About Roe v. Wade, Reagan said, the decision struck down our laws protecting the lives of unborn children. One particular article I found on him in those tumultuous days of his presidency in reference to pro-life and pro-choice discussions, Reagan was quoted saying, each year, remarkable advances in parental medicine bring ever more dramatic confirmation of what common sense told us all along that the child in the womb is simply what each of us once was, a very young, very small, dependent, vulnerable member of the human family. Remarkable advances in prenatal medicine and common sense. Today, in 2017, the advances in prenatal medicine show us the details of that human life within the womb. And today, on the National 
sanctity of life day, we give honor to those who have been taken prematurely and we seek to do three things. The purpose of sanctity of life day is the way that I want to kind of outline my talk for us this morning. And I want to accomplish three things in our time together. Number one, the purpose of sanctity of life day is to bring clarity in all the confusion. There is no way you should be able to leave our session here this morning at all confused about what Christians and the Bible believe about life in the womb and aborting that life. Number two, I think the purpose of Sanctity of Life Sunday is to bring conviction to the comfortable, wherein at this point I will make confession to you that I have been awakened out of somewhat of a moral lethargy, and I'll explain how that has come about. And number three, the purpose of Sanctity of Life Sunday for all of our culture should be to bring comfort to the convicted. So let's begin to walk through this this morning. I'm going to give you a lot of stats and a lot of illustrations, a lot of studies that I've been looking at, and we're also going to get into the Bible bouncing all around on this topic of life in the womb. The purpose of Sanctity of Life Sunday is first to bring clarity in the confusion. The talking heads, the pundits, the politicians are full of propaganda. And language creates culture. As Christians, it is of eminent and absolutely unequivocal importance that we learn to listen to the words that are used in conversations from the pundits, the politicians, and the talking heads very carefully with a critical ear there is a rhetoric, there is a vocabulary that is used in reference to abortion and pro-choice talk that is very confusing. And so our goal is to bring biblical clarity into all of the confusion. We must use biblical words in reference to human beings in the womb. Now, in our culture, there's an interesting phenomenon that I've been studying for 20 years now and was a part of myself. Let me illustrate it this way. George Orwell, in his classic novel, 1984, developed the idea of something that he called double think. Double think. How many of you just by a show of hands have read Orwell's 1984? Very good. Then you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you grab it. It's a quick read. Very interesting and so enlightening on our current culture and the status of the way that we think today. Double think is the act of simultaneously accepting two mutually contradictory beliefs as correct, often in distinct social contexts. Now, in this novel... 1984, the origin of doublethink within the typical citizen in that novel was unclear. It could have partly been a part of Big Brother's formal brainwashing programs, but the novel explicitly showed that people learning doublethink did that due to peer pressure and a desire to fit in or to gain status within what Orwell called the party, the power people that held the status and the position. To be seen as a loyal party member was the greatest desire of some of these citizens, and so they would learn to double-think. They would learn to look at something that was completely contradictory. The most obvious examples in Orwell's novel that leaped to my mind as I'm thinking about the book were part of the ministry or part of the party's institutions were the ministry of love, 
which in actuality was a group of people that killed. There was the Ministry of Peace in Orwell's 1984, which was actually the war machine. And so members of the party and citizens under the party's power had to double think. It's the Ministry of Love And it doesn't matter that the ministry of love is actually there to kill people. It's the ministry of peace, but it doesn't matter that it's the people in the ministry of peace who actually go out and create the wars. They had to double think. They had to hold all these contradictory beliefs together. And they did that, Orwell presents so clearly, in the name of fitting in, not being ostracized, being comfortable, not pushing against the status quo. In the novel, for someone to even recognize, let alone mention, any contradiction within the context of the party line was akin to blasphemy and could subject that someone to disciplinary action and to the instant social disapproval of fellow party members. 1984 is today. There is a cultural power, there is a cultural party that has a set of language about it, a set of words about it, that requires the rest of humanity to double think. Let me give to you just a couple examples. How many of you followed yesterday the Women's March on all of the cities just by a show of hands? All you had to do was watch CNN. All you had to do was watch any news. Follow your Instagram or your face face tubes. (laughs) Whatever it is you guys are looking at, just look at that. You know what's going on in the world. The Women's March originally began as a feminist movement in Washington, D.C. that was fighting for women's rights in the name of equal pay, in the name of equal value in the eyes of the world around them. What I find interesting about women's rights and feminism itself was it was founded by adamantly pro-life women. We don't have time to get into the history of feminism today, so just take that for what it's worth. Feminism as a movement was originally has its roots in extremely pro-life women. So I read an article maybe four or five days ago that the organizers of the Women's March on Washington were aghast. They had committed the ultimate heinous crime of allowing a group of feminists into their midst who were pro-life. They literally issued an apology to all of the culture watching them, saying, we are so sorry that one of our sponsors actually is pro-life. We as a women's feminist movement are pro-choice. We've always been pro-choice. And then they cut that group off. They were marginalized ostracized, and then they were punished for not towing the party line because now if you're going to fight for women's rights, that means you're also going to be pro-choice. Otherwise, you're not truly a feminist. I hope, precious sisters, under the age of 25, listening to this, take down deep into your souls. When your rally cry goes up and you join the ranks of the feminist movement, I hope you're thinking through what you're joining up with. You might be better off to say, I'm going to be a sister in Christ and I'll raise my Bible over my head and declare it as true. They were cut off. Let me give you another example. How's about this for double think in our culture? Planned parenthood. What does that sound like to any of you on the surface? To me, if I read 
go to Planned Parenthood, my assumption would be there would be a group of counselors there that would be taking young parents and helping them plan how to be parents of children. But George Orwell, in his prophetic work, creates this double think and highlights it for us in our current culture to where now when we say Planned Parenthood, we're actually talking about a government-funded organization that performs one in three abortions every year. Planned Parenthood is not Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is Planned Genocide. And there are all too few who will stand and say with clarity and conviction, I can't do this double think thing. It doesn't make any sense. You're not planning for parenthood. You're planning to kill the children within the womb. And it's with these words that the church should increasingly be marginalized from the culture around us. It's with these clear convictions where doublethink is cast aside and we find ourselves saying, here is the reality. And if there's going to be a voice in this world that speaks clearly all the way to the cross, not denying what is obviously true, it should be this group of people represented in this room. Christians, listen. It is not terminating a fetus. It is not terminating a pregnancy. A choice that a woman makes is not only with her own body. It is with another human being within her body. Abortion is murder. Christians, abortion is the murder of over 58 million human beings. This year, 40 to 50 million human beings will be murdered in the womb of their mothers globally. So here at Taproot Church, let's get into the Bible here for just a moment. We are unapologetically pro-life. That is not a political statement. That is a biblical statement. Please let me make that clear. This is not politicizing an issue. We are, as Bible believers, unapologetically pro-life, not because we are politically conservative, but because we are biblically dependent to frame our language around what God says is true. A couple things that the Bible says about life in the womb, and then we'll move on to point number two this morning. Number one, God creates every human being in his image with infinite value and worth. The passage that Marnie read for us in Genesis 1.28, we're actually going to be exploring that very passage and the idea of the image of God over the next three weeks. When we get next week into women and gender and submission and authority and church and family and all these hot button, hot button issues. Welcome back, to, welcome back to work, Danny, from Disneyland, man. It's going to be a fun few weeks. <laughs> that passage 
establishes that God is the one who deems a being human. So one of us, two of us, I don't know, I've had these arguments with quote-unquote Christians over the years, will say, hey, how do you know when that bundle of cells actually has a soul? You don't. How do you know when that bundle of cells matures and multiplies to the point where it's actually considered a human being and has a personage? To which I say, you're absolutely right. Then why would I dare kill it if I don't know? God is the one who deems human, human. God is the one who deems that bundle of cells image bearer. And the moment, biblically, that bundle of cells begins to multiply in the purposes of God, it is an image bearer on its way to purposes for which God has created it. And Christians, we cannot confuse this. The Bible is clear on this issue Life begins at conception. What is so horrifying to me is that scientifically now, through sonograms and those prenatal medical discoveries that we've been making over the last 30 years, is you can see that little human being functioning like a human being. Sometimes as early as eight weeks, the baby is sucking its thumb, already exhibiting dreams. Sometimes as early as eight weeks, when the needle goes in, the baby recoils from the pain. We as receivers of the image of God do not have the right to arbitrarily decide when another image bearer is deemed human or non-human. To do so is to play God, which has gotten us into this mess in the first place, beloved. Number two, God creates life in the womb, and he knows that life's purpose from the very beginning. Just telling you what the Bible says about life in the womb. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. That bundle of cells has been put there by the Lord himself with a purpose, and he knows the purposes of that human being. There's no if, and, or but about it. It is simply the biblical proclamation on life in the womb. Number three, the Bible honors life in the womb as aware that human being in that womb is aware that it's alive and that human being deserves justice. Let me explain it this way. There's a somewhat hotly contested, obscure little law in the book of Exodus. I'll read it to you. Exodus chapter 21. Let me just read it to you and then I'll explain it. Now, the law says, suppose two men are fighting and in the process, they accidentally strike a pregnant woman so she gives birth prematurely. What's contested here is does the baby live or does the baby die? And to whom does this law apply? The law goes on and says, if no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands and the judges approve. But if there is further injury, what's contested is it to the woman or to the baby? If there is further injury, 
The punishment must match the injury. There must be justice, this law says. God is revealing his heart here. Life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Liberal and conservative scholars alike, when they just deal with the Semitic text itself, seem to come up in consensus saying that the law is actually applying not only to the woman, but if that baby is born prematurely and dies, the man who brought about the premature death of that baby dies as an act of justice. The principle we draw from these ancient Hebrew laws that Yahweh gave to reveal his heart for humanity is that God honors the life within the womb as a personage who is due justice when wrong is done to it. Which is why God himself would become a baby to go to be bruised on a cross so that he could forgive us all. There's this fascinating little passage about the incarnation that we love to read at Christmas time, where little baby John the Baptist I can just see him in there already with his big old beard in the womb of his mother, chowing down on locusts with his camel hair, camel hair on and his belt on. He's just in there jiving. And, and Elizabeth goes to, to meet with her cousin, Mary, who's pregnant with the God of the universe, Jesus. And the text tells us, at the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child, this is little baby bearded John in the womb, <laughs> leaped within her and Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Leaped within her. The first time I saw my daughter, Sophia, through a sonogram. I just call it, she was like a little loogie. She was like a little loogie with two little arm buds and two little leg buds. If you've never seen these things, I'm just being honest. As a dad, I was like, oh, it looks like a loogie, gross. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, as I'm looking at the screen, I'm becoming overwhelmed, like that's a little human being, and the little loogie kind of did this little dance, like, hey, dad, here I am. The Bible honors the human being within the womb as due justice and as aware. Why do you think some of your babies are in there kicking right now? They're saying, hey, here I am. Why do you think dad bends over and talks to the belly of his wife? Is he talking to her belly button? No. The babies can hear and their little brain patterns are being formed. And a soul, an image bearer, a human, Adam and Eva, Adam and Eve, dwells within that creative environment. Number two this morning. The purpose of Sanctity of Life Sunday is to bring clarity in the confusion, to rid us of our double think, to demand that we bow to a biblical language and herald a biblical vocabulary with humility and brokenness and gentleness. And I realize I'm not the most gentle of speakers. I do the very best I can. With tenderness, we are to present a biblical rhetoric, a biblical language, a biblical worldview. But number two this morning, it is to bring conviction to the comfortable. I mentioned that I've been awakened out of somewhat of a moral lethargy, and I want to confess that to you. Some months back, as we always do here at Taproot Church, we grabbed another bull directly by the horns, the political bull of Trump and Clinton. And those conversations that have followed those political preaching times have been so beneficial for me, and I'm so thankful for them. 
One of those conversations in particular has roused in me a deep moral awakening. Conversations around the platform that Hillary Clinton ran on. And again, I want to say up front, this is not support for Donald Trump nor for Hillary Clinton, one or the other. I support Jesus and I pray my guts out for whoever is president at this point. The point that I want to make is the conversations around the political platform I began to have with a number of people, actually. And as the numbers were being presented and as people were talking, I, I, was, I was listening, but it was like it was going into deaf ears. Do you know how many babies have been aborted? Well, you know, abortion, political issue, these single-issue voters. And I, I found myself saying that out loud at one moment after thinking through things. And suddenly I was struck to the core and I came to realize it was as if my moral senses had been cauterized by the continual heat of propaganda and rhetoric and termination of fetuses and women's rights to choose what to do with their own bodies and this slew of such horrific meditation to think about the death of human beings in their mother's womb, I had solidified this wall of safety that made me comfortable to just listen to these conversations but not viscerally, emotionally react Feel, cry, be overwhelmed, be horrified. And so I've cued on that in my own heart. I pray that every sanctity of life, Sunday we will do some sort of sermon on this. I pray that a sermon like this may awaken some of us out of our own personal moral lethargy where at the very least in the midst of conversations, pro-choice, pro-life conversations, we will feel a tear rise up in our eye and in our gut of guts, we will feel ourselves weeping and longing and praying and awakening. I want to address this issue of the cauterization of our souls and our moral senses because our society continues only to stiffen its neck and harden its heart in reference to these moral senses that every human being has been granted. Let me give you an example. Right in the middle of December, just last year, December 14th, the psychiatry group known as JAMA, JAMA, they released this study. I'll read it to you. It said this. This longitudinal cohort study observed 956 women semi-annually for five years. Eight days after seeking an abortion, women who were denied an abortion reported significantly more anxiety symptoms and lower self-esteem and life satisfaction and similar levels of depression as women receiving abortions. Outcomes improved or remained steady, though, over time. This JAMA study went on, and they concluded this. Compared with having an abortion, being denied an abortion may actually be associated with greater risk of experiencing adverse psychological outcomes. That's a lot of psychobabble. Let me explain how the New York Times picks this up. They pick it up and they say, awesome. This new study just came out that shows if women are denied an abortion, they're actually going to experience more adverse effects than if they just went through with the abortion. And the pro-choice community has picked this up like a virus. One of the primary arguments in much legislation that 
stalls abortion for a moment is that a girl needs to receive counseling before she goes through with an abortion psychologically. She needs to be well prepared because of the psychological affect and effect of aborting a baby. And this study seems to show that in actuality, hey, it's actually better to go through with the abortion because psychologically afterwards you won't experience as much anxiety. We could take that one of two ways. One, it's true. Or two, it's a lie. In my heart of hearts, I want to say this study and these 1,000 women that this study followed all lied. That the ones that went through with an abortion experienced greater degree of trauma and pain than did those who decided not to. I want to believe that. But if we say it's true that psychologically these women who were denied an abortion actually experienced more psychological trauma than those who went through with it. The Bible addresses this. Let me read to you two passages. The Spirit, Paul says to this young pastor Timothy, expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. We may have reached a point societally where the searing of our conscience is so severe, the desensitizing of our moral and ethical senses is so destroyed, so seared, that a thousand women can be followed and the conclusion of the study is that it's better to kill the baby in the womb psychologically than it is to avoid that. To the young church in Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul would write this, to which we as pastors address the church here in Burien at Taproot. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. I think that societally, our consciences are so seared that societally, we are so devoted to refusing and loving the truth of which we will again be addressing next week as we talk about the reality of gender and image bearing as male and female as the nature of marriage unfolds in the Bible, male and female, as the destruction of womb or destruction of babies in the womb, I think societally we're there. The coming of the lawless one is in accordance with how Satan works, and you're being given over to a great delusion, a lie, a total lie. What can we do as Christians? We find ourselves this morning burdened. We find ourselves this morning convicted. Number one, pray. I have begun a process of prayer for the lost babies, for our society, for our mothers, just a continual concerted prayer. Number two, we should be the ones speaking and being a voice for the unborn. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. 
Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Respectfully, calmly, tenderly, in your conversations with coworkers, friends, and family members, when this issue comes up, unapologetically stand for the speechless and speak clearly. That fetus in that womb is a human being. If it is aborted, it is murdered. Yes, you will be rejected. Yes, you will be seen as narrow-minded, archaic, silly, dangerous even. But what else are we going to do? Remain silent while 125,000 human beings are killed today in their mother's wombs? How can we? How could we? We pray, we speak, number two, or number three, excuse me, we serve. We can't just be communicating, we actually need to be involved. And we'll be praying about this as time unfolds in the coming months and years here at Taproot Church. We should be befriending young mothers, particularly single mothers, where abortion is so high. Here in Taproot Church, we have a number of leaders that are involved with young life and young lives. Young Lives is a group that actually takes single moms and gives them hope, gives them a place to be in community, get involved, talk with Alexis Jones, get involved with these young families, get involved with these young women. Talk with Gina Street. She's got a whole group of young gals that are going to be totally susceptible and prone to getting pregnant and aborting those babies. Help her. Help her. Help. We've got to help. We've got to do something, anything. Pray, speak, serve. I looked it up. Right within a 20-mile radius of us are three pregnancy crisis centers, one in Des Moines, Federal Way, and Kent. Give, help, serve, find some way. Number four, adopt and foster. The great doctrine of adoption laid out in the Bible lays a mandate on all of us to consider adoption as an option for us personally as families. And then number five, and I got this from Matt Chandler, who I consider one of my pastors, the president of our network that we're a part of. Matt was just saying to his church, you got to be in for the long haul. I think as Christians, we we get duped by the fast-paced, fast-food, high-speed internet society around us, and we think, all right, I'm serving at Pregnancy Crisis Center. We did a sermon on Sanctity of Life Sunday. Abortion is obliterated tomorrow. This has been going on for four decades, five decades, four decades, globally, and it's only gaining momentum in some areas of culture. Hence, Did anybody listen to the language that was being used by the women on the Women March yesterday? Did anybody like really listen to what they were saying? Trump's not my president. It's my body. Both totally contradictory terms, by the way. Trump is your president, and it's not only your body. Double think does not work. It does not work. I'm not saying that to politically unsettle anybody. We have got to cut through the rhetoric and be in for the long haul. Finally, we close with this this morning. I'm persuaded that Sanctity of Life Sunday, every Sunday, and and every day of our lives should be a day in the gospel to bring comfort 
to the convicted, to bring comfort to the, to the convicted. Statistically speaking right now, I think it's somewhere around one in six of you are under such a tremendous amount of burden and pain, both men and women. And the rest of us know someone that has had an abortion or multiple abortions. Which means that there is a level of discomfort that goes beyond just, well, that was an awkward sermon. That was a difficult topic to listen to. There's a level of discomfort that goes deep down into the soul where the scarring and the sins of our lives and our world bring such shame and guilt and pain that we sometimes feel like death ourselves would be better than continuing to live. My counselor told me, yes, I have a counselor, so should of all of you, <laughs> a number of years ago, that the human soul is not designed to carry on in a continual sense of shame and guilt and pain. Eventually it breaks. And it's mornings like these where we address these topics where it can surface guilt and shame and pain that maybe you've had buried for your lifetime. And God wants to begin to bring healing and comfort and peace. A few things to consider as we close and come to communion this morning. Number one, the Bible persuades us that these babies, these 58 million babies, these 58 million human beings, we're going to meet them. There's this amazing little story in 2 Samuel. David has impregnated Bathsheba. He's been busted. The baby is born and the baby dies. In the midst of David's fasting and the hopes that God would be merciful with the life of his son, he seeks God's face. But after the baby dies, David says to the servants as they come to him, because David ends his fast after the baby has died, and he says to his servants, I will go to him. David was utterly persuaded that the death of that infant, he would meet him. And so too, we can draw from that principle, not exactly, but we could extract from that the truth that these babies who were Imago Dei, they were image bearers, they were humans, human beings that God had created with purpose, who were prematurely destroyed and murdered in the womb, when we enter in to eternity, we will meet these babies. We will go to them. They will have names and bodies and just like you, just like me. I, this isn't the place or time to get into what our physical bodies are going to be like. I don't know. But be comforted this morning. And I know as I think about this, it's the one thing that helps me to... It feels like when I start thinking about the abortion issue, it literally can feel like, a, like there's a weight on my heart and it feels like I can't breathe. And then when I think about being able to meet all of these human beings, that they're alive, they're alive, there's hope, there's comfort that's given, like deep comfort, beyond what I'm able to explain with human words, like, okay, Yahweh lives, creator God is good. Number two, remember the gospel. God became a baby and died for all of us. And he died for our decisions that were made both in ignorance and not in ignorance. The death of Jesus Christ, his grace is so scandalous. It seems like I've been using this analogy often these past couple weeks in reference to the gospel. For you this morning who are under the weight of shame and guilt and pain and fear and hurt, you need to hear and understand this. 
there is a Pacific Ocean of grace and acceptance for you. Love and protection for you. Not punishment, not chastisement, not casting you aside, but taking you in, holding you close, reminding you that you will see your baby again, reminding you that because Jesus Christ died, you too are utterly forgiven and accepted, and you will live eternally with that child that is now with Jesus. Number four, to find comfort for the convicted, confession is the beginning point. This past week, one of the sisters, a member of our church, wrote me a letter saying, Sanctity of Life Sunday is very difficult for me. But you know what she did that I was so struck by in her process of healing? And she's by no means healed. There is deep residual pain that I think will be with her until the day she sees her children again. She began to talk openly and safely in gospel context with gospel communities And what I loved about her story was she actually went through and named her aborted children. In her letter, she talked about Sarah and Kelly and Joseph. To confess their names, to identify them, to know them, and to know that we'll meet them. I'm going to meet Sarah and Kelly and Joseph is where healing begins. It's where comfort begins. I want to encourage you this morning, if you've been buried under the, the guilt and the shame and the fear, if you're reading that JAMA study saying, yep, that's me. You know, I don't really have any problem with what I did 15 years ago. You're lying. I will cut through the double think for you. You're lying. Your soul is tattered. And your Savior is seeking to heal you. So surrender to that. Come to he, him who was bruised and beaten. Your punishment is gone. And he has nothing but accepting love for you. And then begin to confess and name these things for what they are and find healing. Lecrae, in an interview with John Piper this past week, he actually, in his album, uh, Good, Bad, and Ugly, as an act of healing and as an act of confession, committed an entire verse of one of his songs to confessing, forcing his girlfriend to get an abortion when they were younger. And at the end of that interview, Piper was just saying, sometimes we try to bury our sins, but the healing process begins when we let them come to the light. Come to the light. The final thing that we can take comfort in is this last year, 2016, was the lowest rate of abortions since Roe v. Wade. Now, before we stand up and clap, that was over 900,000 babies. In the mid-90s, we were around 1.6 million babies a year. That's continuing to drop. I think it's continuing to drop for a number of reasons that we can rejoice in. Uh, The Planned Parenthood videos that went viral. I think most people had a hard time stomaching what they were seeing. I think sonograms. I think churches like this, where the voice is clear and the double think is wiped away. And I think prayer. 
And guys, I think we should pray for the day where, as I've said before, where my son's church and my grandchildren say, Grandpa, did you guys really have black and Mexican and white churches? Like, that's so weird. Why were you so segregated? And I pray that they're talking about abortion like we talk about the Holocaust. Where they're saying, how did you let that happen? How, how could a million human beings be? I'm praying that that's what comes about. And the trends with science and the scriptures and the Holy Spirit are pointing us that way. We're going to do something a little bit unique this morning. Uh, if the, the folks that were going to hand out the flowers, would you guys go ahead and come on up while I set this up and begin handing out flowers? We as a church wanted to do something this morning before we take communion. We went yesterday and bought one flower for all of us to hold in a time of silence. And so these folks are going to be handing out flowers. We bought about 120 of them. I don't know if we have enough, but I'd like each of us to have a flower. And as they're handing these out, what we're going to do is we're just going to have a, a quiet moment of silence for the voices that never got to speak in this world. And we're going to rejoice that one day we'll get to hear their voices. I'll give them a little time to pass these out. While they're passing these things out, I want to encourage those of you that on this last point, you know, we're feeling that desperation. Today would be a good day for you to talk with somebody, for you to, to have a conversation with somebody. Go to your HG leader. Come and talk with myself or Jim or Darren, Sarah. Come and, and, and be open. Find family around you. I think that for many who have um, endured the horrific pain of abortion, Silence is the continuing grave that you live in rather than life being given to you. And so today, I would greatly encourage you to find somebody that you can talk with. Be bold. And let that moment of confession begin to bring healing. Every time this little flower is looked at, put it somewhere, I'd like you guys to lift up a prayer for our culture and for our city, for women, for men who have endured the horrors of abortion. Every time you see it, I'd like you to pray for our politicians. Pray that God brings transformation in this world. Think upon and pray for what God is wanting to do. Every time you see this flower, ask the Lord, is there something that I can do today? Is there something I could do this week to engage this issue? Not just on Sanctity of Life Sunday, but I want to make this part of my mantra, part of my mission. And guys, if we are the expression of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, yes, this is an issue that we need to deal with. This morning, I want to take here now just one minute of silence.
And as we listen to the cries of the babies, even in this room, remember, remember, 58 million voices that never got to gurgle and coo and scream and wake up mom at 2 o'clock in the morning. Over 58 million voices that never got to go to elementary school. 58 million people, the next Einsteins and Billy Grahams. Let's take a moment and let's remember their voices. Father, I have family that I will never get to hear their voices in this life. We all have sisters and brothers, cousins, family members and friends that we will never hear their voices. We'll never laugh with them will never cry with them in this life. And as a church collectively, in the silence, we listen for your voice of comfort because you're aware and you hear and you speak and you love. Those voices, Lord, are praising you in this moment. They are shouting your glory. They are singing of your infinite love and mercy. They are seeing the forgiveness that you offer to the father, to the mother who ended their life, and they are praising your grace. And with this flower in hand, Father, we are reminded that life is from you. And so we know, God, that these voices we will hear. We will meet them, speak to them, Rejoice with them, bow down before you, cast our crowns at your feet with them. God, again, as we prepare for communion, may our hearts rest in the infinite Pacific Ocean of your grace. I repent personally of my moral lethargy. I seek you to know what I could do when I can do it, how, and to respond, to be the hands and feet of the king and his kingdom coming in this world. Bless this community of souls, Lord, that you have granted life to. Bless them with your presence. Bless them with your peace. Bless us with the blood-washing grace of God himself this morning. And so, Lord, as we prepare to take communion, may we be washed ever more clean, ever more pure, 
walking in the satisfying justification and joy of Jesus Christ. We exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. The band will come forward and lead us in communion.